Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Good morning. I suppose I should say Happy Thanksgiving to you because we're coming up on it Thursday, right? So Happy Thanksgiving as we come up. A glorious time in our own nation and culture where we get to give thanks to the Lord for what He's done for us and the many ways in which He's provided for us. We're going to be in Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. As we continue our series in Genesis, reading from verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Billah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Billah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. And opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, to our hearing. We ask that your spirit would give us understanding that we would be astonished by the loving kindness that you show to a family that is such an obvious train wreck. It is clear that their sin has brought so much heartache and strife and grief. And yet you show them grace again and again. May we remember that you are the God of all grace. That you are the God who has covenanted faithfulness to your people. And that you never cease to show it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been in a number of conversations, and I imagine you've been in them too, where someone has told me this. It's obvious that the Bible endorses polygamy. Now, how do I know that the Bible endorses polygamy? Because Jacob takes four wives. We see it right here in this passage. And the Bible never condemns that behavior. Now, every time I hear that comment... I'm sort of taken aback and concerned about the reading ability of the average American. I don't mean the ability of an American to decode symbols and understand what the vocabulary words mean that they're reading. I mean their ability to follow the narrative that's being laid out in front of them. Their ability to follow the point of a story. The book of Genesis clearly tells us that marriage is between one man and one woman in Genesis 2.24. That can't be more clear. And in case you think I'm stretching the interpretation of Genesis 2.24, go read Matthew 19. That's how Jesus interprets it. And if we can't trust Jesus' interpretation of Genesis 2.24, we're all in trouble. But it's clear that that's the case. Further, if you follow the story of Genesis, the stories wherein a man takes more than one wife, for example... Abraham and Sarah add Hagar to the mix. Or here where Jacob takes four wives. You do not have to go very far in those narratives before you see what an utter disaster that decision becomes. It causes significant family strife. And Moses doesn't actually need to come in with a kind of voiceover where he says, this is a really bad decision Jacob's making. This is immoral and will cause problems. You guys understand that. You watch movies. Maybe our movie-watching ability is better than our story-reading ability. But you watch a movie and you see a character about to make or making a series of bad decisions. And no narrator needs to come on and say, this is a bad call. You just know. You know. You're like, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. You know. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's obvious these are bad calls. The reader can tell it's a bad decision. The reader knows it's a violation of the seventh commandment. Remember, these books are written by Moses to the people leaving Egypt. He writes these books to a people who've received the Ten Commandments. And the seventh commandment is, don't commit adultery. And it leads to significant problems when they do. Not only does it offend God, it causes significant family strife. Think of the concluding comment at the end of Jacob's marriages. 
Look at what it says about Leah and Rachel. Their wedding was one week apart, by the way. So he marries Leah, then a week later marries Rachel, then serves seven more years for Rachel. But look at Genesis 29, verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now you can imagine right away, do you have to read any further before you know this is going to be a problem? This is a formula for significant problems. Jacob's preference for one wife over another is something the Bible will go on to call hatred. Look at Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Jacob hates Leah. Now, I want to argue that Jacob hates Leah in two ungodly ways. When I wrote this sermon, I had like five pages of notes on these two ways that Jacob hates Leah and two godly ways to have this kind of hatred and two ungodly ways to have this kind of hatred. And I thought, this is going to be a whole sermon just on this preface. So I'm just going to tell you the two ungodly ways that Jacob hates Leah and we'll leave the godly ways to hate to the side. You know there's godly ways to hate. God hates so it can be godly to hate. You understand that. Just one small example. Anybody who doesn't hate Hamas, who cut the heads off babies and raped young girls until their pelvises were broken while laughing and videotaping it, anybody who doesn't hate them doesn't understand what love is. You cannot love your neighbor and not hate that. Cannot. So hate can be a godly affection. But Jacob hates Leah in two ungodly ways. He has an ungodly preference for Rachel over Leah. And he has an ungodly hostility toward Leah. Now, why? Because Leah has conspired with her father Laban to deceive Jacob. You guys remember that? He's married to Leah by way of Laban and Leah deceiving him. He thought he was marrying Rachel. Russell dealt with that last week. And Jacob's hatred for Leah, his preference for Rachel, and his animosity toward Leah is the context for our passage. Now I want to look this morning at the fallout of Jacob's ungodly and polygamous marriages. And as we do, I want to consider how the loving kindness of God was shown to what is, if you will, a hateful family. This isn't just a broken home. We talk about broken homes. But what we don't talk about is the hateful, sinful acts we participate in that bring about a broken home. And that's what's happening here. This is a broken home that has significant fallout from the behavior of Jacob and then the behavior of Rachel and Leah. But as this happens, in the midst of this, God shows a kind of loving kindness and grace that's stunning. So here's how we're going to look at the passage. We're going to look at it in this order. First, we're going to look at the family strife caused by Jacob's hatred. We're going to look at that in really his polygamy and hatred. The family strife caused by Jacob's polygamy and hatred. We're going to look at that in Genesis 29, 31 through Genesis 30, verse 21. So those passages. Second, we're going to look at the loving kindness of God to Jacob's sinful household. God's loving kindness is shown to this whole wicked household. 
We're going to look at that in a variety of passages, but namely, especially Genesis 30, 22 through 24. And then we're going to consider a few lessons for our own lives. So let's look at the family strife caused by Jacob's hatred. Now, I suppose I should say I want us to come at this passage by first looking at how it's arranged. There's the narrator, Moses, who writes this, the author, actually arranges the passage in a way that shows us exactly what he's up to. And as we walk through that arrangement, I want you to see how Jacob's polygamous preference has led to these two wives resenting one another. They're going to compete for the affection of their husband, and they'll desire to outdo one another in childbearing. They will resort to everything from prayer, which seems godly, but it's really manipulative, to adultery, to superstition, anything they can to gain the upper hand. So let's look at how the passage is structured. Look at Genesis 29, 31. Look there first. Note these words. We're going to look here first at unloved Leah. Look. When the Lord saw, do you see that language? That Leah was hated. So here's, the Lord sees unloved Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now look at Genesis 30 in verse 1, and we're going to consider Rachel, barren Rachel. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. So we have unloved Leah, the Lord sees her. Barren Rachel she sees that she bore no children to him. Verse 9 of chapter 30. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. So now unloved Leah is no longer bearing children. So notice this. The Lord saw. Rachel saw. Leah saw. Let's go back to Rachel in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. So the Lord saw Rachel saw, Leah saw, the Lord remembered. That's how this passage is arranged. You're going from Leah to Rachel to Leah to Rachel. And you're having this exchange and the Lord's involvement in all of that. So let's consider each section briefly. Let's look first at unloved Leah. Look at Genesis 29, 31 again. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Herein we're learning about Leah's sad plight. She yearns to be loved by her polygamous husband. She yearns for Jacob to love her. And she names her children in a manner that demonstrates how much she wants Jacob to love her. Look at verse 32. And Leah conceived... And bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. So the Lord looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. See, Reuben is like, see, a son. The Lord has looked, see, I have a son. Now Jacob will love me. Go on to the next Verse, verse 33 with Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. 
Simeon sounds like the Hebrew for heard. The Lord heard me. He saw me see a son. Reuben, now my husband will love me. The Lord heard that I was hated. He heard me. See, Simeon, now my husband will love me. Verse 34. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, like attached to my side, close to me. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name was called Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew for attached. These are the groans of an unloved woman. It's really sad to read. If you just slow down and consider. I have borne this man three children and he still doesn't love me. Maybe this time he'll love me. Sadly, Leah is not the last woman to believe that childbearing will fix her problems in marriage. Finally, Leah gives birth to her fourth son, and for the first time looks to the Lord rather than her husband. Look at verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here because we will come back to this again and again. But it's not an incidental fact that she now praises the Lord at the birth of Judah. You will learn as we go through Genesis that not only is Judah a hot mess, but Judah is the one of whom it will be prophesied the messianic king shall come through you. And now she's praising the Lord. But look at the very last comment. Then she ceased bearing. Don't miss that because that's going to become a problem for Leah in this story. Let's look at the second movement here with Rachel, barren Rachel, verse 30, Genesis chapter 30. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Now, Rachel envies her sister. She's violating the 10th commandment here. This is coveting. She covets her sister's children. And as she does violate that commandment, we're immediately brought back to the strife between Jacob and Esau. If you remember, Jacob and Esau has the parallel language. Here we hear, give me children or I die. There we hear Esau say, give me that red stew or I'll die. Further, the younger sibling, Rachel, is attempting to usurp the blessing and the place of the older sibling, which brings us back to Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. They also look like Cain and Abel with their sibling rivalry. These themes are just being brought all the way through Genesis. There's a kind of ongoing sibling rivalry that is birthed by sin. Please understand this. The fall of Adam and Eve and the guilt and corruption that comes to us all has wrecked families. It has wrecked relationships in the way God intended them to be. And if you don't believe that, you haven't lived long enough yet. Or you're just keeping your eyes closed and your head in the sand. These two women will do anything to gain the upper hand. Anything. At times they pray and it seems to trust the Lord. At other times they come up with sinful strategies to get whatever they want. And you might be familiar with that pattern in your own life. 
Now look at Genesis 30, verses 3 through 8. Then she said, this is Rachel, here is my servant Billah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Billah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings or with the wrestlings of God, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now there are other comparisons coming up here. I don't want you to miss. Rachel does something that people did in the ancient Near East, but the Hebrews were not to do. Those who believed in Yahweh were not to do. Rachel does what Sarai did, or Sarah did, when she gave Abraham Hagar. Rachel's now going to participate in the same behavior. You can't have children through me? Fine. Here's another woman. Have children through her. With Abraham and Sarah, and now Jacob and Rachel, you begin to see, if you will, the beginnings of what we today call surrogacy. But it's essentially our willingness to do whatever it takes to have children, even if it means we've got to step outside the marriage covenant that God has given us. And that's what you see them doing. Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham. Rachel gives Billah to Jacob. By the way, all of this competition between the older sister and the younger sister, where the husband loves the younger and not the older, will give rise to law in Deuteronomy 21, where God's going to say you cannot give preference to the younger sibling over the older. You can't do that in inheritance. And you can see why these laws have to come to be. Let's look at the third passage now. Leah in Genesis 30 and verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, so now Leah's seeing, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Leah's womb is closed, and so now she turns to the same strategy that Rachel's employing. But as wicked as all this looks, Leah and Rachel are not done with their wickedness yet. They're going to continue with further strategies of trying to gain the upper hand on one another. So let's look at the next strategy. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, so remember that's Leah's oldest son, he's now old enough to go out and harvest. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? That's Leah saying to Rachel, you've taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Now just stop there for a moment and we'll continue on. Why is Rachel so hip to get these mandrakes? So much so that though Jacob seems to no longer be paying any attention to Leah, 
He's no longer lying with her. In fact, it's gotten to the point where Rachel apparently has control of who her husband is and is not lying with. I just want you to understand how sick that situation is. Why is Rachel so keen to get these mandrakes that she's going to sell her husband? Well, the answer is maybe surprising to you. Mandrakes in that culture were superstitiously seen as a means for getting pregnant, making yourself fertile if you weren't fertile. There was a kind of superstition that if you take in the mandrakes, then your previously barren womb might become fertile. And so Rachel's like, I see your son's brought in mandrakes. You have enough children. Give me the mandrakes. I'm not bearing enough children. And Leah's like, you already took my husband. You want to take my mandrakes too? Because I could have more children. You understand what's happening here. And Rachel's like, fine. You can go sleep with him. Just give me the mandrakes. So we see what happens. Verse 16. When Jacob came from the field in the evening... Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me. Now notice this, for I have hired you. We can literally translate that, I have rented you. I have rented you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And you've got to wonder, what is wrong with Jacob? Here's this woman, okay. Here's this, okay. What a sick man this guy is. So anyway, we go on. So he lay with her that night and God Notice, listen to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now Dinah will come up in a few chapters in Genesis, and another very sad situation. But Leah rented her husband. She hired him. I mean, that is just sad language, isn't it? The relationship of these wives to their husband has become transactional in nature. It's a transaction. Their relationship with Jacob has become like the relationship, now notice the parallel, between Jacob and Laban. It's transactional. You give me this woman... I'll serve you seven years. You give me that woman, I'll serve you another seven years. Here it is. You give me your mandrakes, you can have the man. They're now using him to one-up one another. And you're seeing Jacob's own behavior, usurping his older brother, grasping after the blessing in exchange for the red stew, buying women off of Laban in exchange for service, you see all of his own behavior showing up in his family, between his wives. And yet, I hope you've noticed, and yet in the midst of their sin, the Lord continues to hear them and cares for them. It's stunning, really. I mean, Leah literally rents her husband, and the Lord listens to her, and gives her a son. That's stunning. And this leads to our second point. The loving kindness of God to Jacob's sinful household. 
the loving kindness of God to Jacob's sinful household. Look at Genesis 30 and verse 22. Then God remembered, here's our last movement, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. In other words, the Lord has taken away my reproach with Joseph, so I'm going to name him Joseph, which is something akin to saying, may the Lord give me another son. Which, by the way, is Rachel's way of pointing toward a son who is to come. Really, Moses' way of telling us there's another son coming named Benjamin. But not now, but he's coming. This is an interesting passage because it's the final and climactic moment of Jacob's leaving the land to go find wives, if you will. He went to find a wife, came back with more than one. And then his return to the land. His return to the land. And we've seen the Lord's, if you will, covenantal loving kindness all the way through the passage. Again, you want to see the Lord's loving kindness, again, look at Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Leah does not show herself as some kind of model Christian in this passage. She got into the marriage through deceiving her husband. And yet the Lord cares for her. He sees her and cares for her. Genesis 30 and verse 6 Notice in Rachel's case, then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. In other words, Rachel has given her husband another adulterous marriage. And the Lord rewards her for that. Gives her a son. And she knows it. Verse 17, go down to verse 17. After Leah traded mandrakes in exchange for laying with her husband, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. In the face of their wicked sin, in what is clearly a broken home, a home deeply marred by sin, the Lord continues to show astonishing grace. It's astonishing. It is with the birth of Joseph and the promise of the birth of Benjamin that Jacob's family then heads back to the promised land. So look at verse 25 of chapter 30. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. In other words, this is the point at the birth of Joseph at which Jacob, or the narrative, is now going to turn where Jacob is going to begin working really hard to get back to the promised land. And Jacob will return to the promised land with a full household. Twelve children. Think of the children he returns with. Think of this in the face of all of Jacob's wickedness here. He's going to return with Levi from whom the priests of Israel will come. He's going to return with Judah, from whom will come the kings, particularly the Messiah. He's going to return with Joseph. And it is here in the returning with Joseph that we see God's redemptive grace in their lives most clearly. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 22 again. 
Then God remembered Rachel. In doing so, God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When it says the Lord remembered Rachel, that isn't an incidental comment. In Genesis, the language of God remembered is first used of Noah, and then of Abraham, and now of Rachel. Remember, the Lord remembered Noah, Genesis 8.1. Why? Noah was on the ark in the floodwaters, and the Lord remembered him and brought him safely through the flood and onto dry ground. The Lord remembered Abraham and saved Lot from his judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19.29. Now the Lord remembered Rachel and gave her Joseph. And as you know, if you know anything about Genesis, you know that Joseph's story will consume much of the rest of the book of Genesis. He will be a blessing to his family and a blessing to the nations. Joseph has been sent by the Lord to deliver his family from famine. And he will deliver the nations from famine. Sovereign Grace, think about this. It is through Jacob's sin and the sin of his wives that the Lord works out his and our redemption. It reminds you a lot of like in Acts 2.23 that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified by the hands of lawless men. Hear that. God's predetermined plan was that we would be saved through the most heinous, sinful act in the history of the world. We would be saved through murdering God's holy son. And this leads to really three lessons that I don't want us to miss. There are more, but I'll just give you three briefly. First, trust in the Lord and his promises to your household. Trust in the Lord and his promises to your household. It is not your life that secures, listen to this, not your moral life that secures God's promises for you and your children. It is the Lord's loving kindness that secures his promises for you and for your children. It is his covenant faithfulness that secures his promises. Now, I am not denying, please do not hear me, I'm not denying that God's word does teach you that you're to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Clearly you are. And nor am I denying that the Lord's word says that if you raise your children in the way they should go, when they're older, they will not depart from it. That is all ordinarily true. But that's not a guarantee. Here's what I'm wanting you to hold on to. Your confidence is never found in your parenting. I think you probably already are aware of that. If you're not, just give it a few more years. Your confidence is not found in your parenting. It's never found in your parenting. It's found in the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Here's an objection I get. But what if my adult children are not walking with the Lord now? Some of us are experiencing that right now. What if our adult children are not walking with the Lord now? Well, then mom and dad, pray for them. Plead to the Lord to keep his promises. Don't panic. Trust them to keep his promises. Don't try to 
guilt them back into the faith with little comments here and there. Love them, be kind to them, pray for them. Trust the Lord to work in them. Listen, until their eyes have closed in death, there's still hope for them. Ask the Lord to keep his promises. Don't panic. Trust him to do it. They might come to Christ after you die. You have no idea. So stop worrying and start resting in the Lord and his covenant faithfulness. Pray. Further, if you've made a mess, if you've made a mess in your family, the Lord is still good and his word is still true. You understand, the Lord's word is good and true to this family. And I bet you have not made as big a mess as Jacob made here. Trust him for his promises. Rest in his unchanging grace. If your family is a disaster due to your fault or because of no fault of your own, it doesn't really matter, the Lord's loving kindness has not changed. He does all his holy will. I can trust the Lord for my children and grandchildren even if I'm not always impressed with their parents. If you understood there, that includes us and them. Second, trust in the Lord and his provision. Trust in the Lord and his provision. The lies of these folks is often made unbearable by their own sinful distrust, isn't it? They take matters in their own hands. They don't trust the Lord to help them. You can easily make your relationships transactional, like a commercialization of friendship or marriage or parenting. I get this and you get this. That's how these kinds of relationships become. It's rarely... I give you for your sake, it's always some kind of an exchange. I gave you that and I never got a thank you, so I'm angry with you. Now that person may have been rude, but did you give them that so you could get something from them? This happens in pastoral ministry. I'll tell you, it's, it's often a difficult thing to deal with as a pastor when you end up in a meeting where someone's like, it's happened to me more than once. I was coming, and I'm out front trying to greet people as they come in. I was coming in one Sunday, and you didn't say hello to me. So I'm leaving the church, because you clearly don't care about me. I'm like, is that the nature of our relationship? That it's purely transactional? You didn't come up and say hello to me either. Should I leave the church over that? You might not know this, but we can be transactional relationships and somewhat unloving in our relationships in a variety of ways, even on a Sunday morning, I show up late without any regard for the fact that maybe there are people here who are in need, and I'm supposed to come to church to stir up one another to love and good deeds, but I'm late, so I can't do that. I leave as quickly as I can because I have something I've scheduled afterwards, so how am I going to stir up other people to love and good deeds when I'm running out the door as quickly as I can? I only am concerned for the friends who I have in church. I'm close to them, so I can't wait to go see them, but I don't bother to look around to see if anybody's alone or a visitor or down. I just run off to my friendships. Oftentimes, I'll walk by you and not say hello to you because as pastors, we're constantly looking for the people who are alone or whom we know are struggling with the variety of things that we know about and you don't. So we go after them and we walk past you and it's like, you were rude. And you want to say, there are a lot of things you don't know. 
And friends, if we don't start looking outside of ourselves toward others and we just treat all of our relationships as if every relationship we have exists to gratify me and I'm not going to step out of my comfort zone and go and help another, though they give me nothing in return, then we're not going to really love anybody other than ourselves. And what ends up happening in relationships where you use people is you force the outcome you want in that relationship and you inevitably sin and make your life more difficult. We need to allow the Lord to provide what you need. Let me show you how this comes up. My specific concern here is for young singles or older singles. I guess it doesn't singles. Where you want a spouse so badly you'll throw away your faith to grasp after what the Lord has not yet provided. You'll throw it away by marrying somebody you know is unwise and ungodly. The same is true with folks who grasp after children rather than trust in the Lord. And you'll make any number of ethical compromises to get them. We have an entire system of health care that has run way ahead of our ethical thinking. So that we can go ahead and get children by any means necessary. Friends, we can trust the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from your Father who's above. He cares for you. Trust him. Finally, we need to trust in the Lord and walk in his ways. Trust the Lord and walk in his ways. The law of the Lord is not burdensome for his people. Did you hear what I said? The law of the Lord is not burdensome. Now listen to the last phrase. For his people. If you try to keep the law in order that you may live and become his people... The law will crush you and kill you. God's law is a burden to unbelievers. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, then the law condemns you for your sin. In fact, you'll find the law of God arouses in your flesh further disobedience. It's like the kid who's, you probably, it's happened to you. It's happened to me. Do not touch the fire alarm thing and you just want to touch it because it says don't touch it. Don't touch this wet paint. You're like, I'm I've got to touch it, right? So this is what the law does in sinful flesh is it arouses a desire for more sin. There is only one man who ever could or ever did keep the law. Only one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to how Paul puts this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time is a way of speaking about the prophetic clock. God promised, starting in Genesis 3.15, that this son would come, and now he has come. That's when the incarnation occurred. That was the fullness of time. In fact, we're going to have an Advent series starting next week where we're going to talk about the coming of Christ. I encourage you to invite friends and family and coworkers and neighbors because we're going to go through several, if you will, gospel in a nutshell passages. These little passages that sum up the gospel so clearly. With that said, Jesus was born of a woman. He was true man. And he was born under the law. He came and kept it for us. He kept both the precept of the law, that's its command, and he kept the penalty of the law. That's the, if you will, the justice due to us for violating it. He did both of those things for us so that we could be redeemed, saved, forgiven. He did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, Paul says, adoption 
as sons. And sovereign grace, because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, or Father. In other words, Jesus saved you and adopted you into sonship with the Father. What did you do to cause any of that? You sinned. I was just at adoptions on Friday for the Bells. I saw three children adopted. The language of court adoption, if you haven't been there, is marvelous. It is the one time you walk into a human court and marvel <laughs> at anything good, at the grace of God on display. What did those children do to affect their adoption? They didn't make it happen. They didn't choose it. The judge never even asked the children, do you want this? Of course the child wants it. What child wants to be an orphan? And friends, the Lord saves you. And when he does, you want it too. When he opens your eyes to see your sin and his grace in Christ, there's nothing you want more than to be his. And thus his law is no longer a burden to you. It is the law of your father who is filled with loving kindness, who saves you and who adopted you, and you want to walk in his law. And if you walk in it as a response of gratitude for your redemption, then it's a blessing for you. And so I pray that we will. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who trusts you for your provision, who sees how gracious and kind you are to a people so continually bent on sin, on rebellion, on walking in our own way according to our own wisdom. May you enliven those who do not know Christ by your spirit so that they trust him, so they call on you as the father, as your children, knowing redemption in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, as those who are your children, by the Spirit and through faith, may we walk in godliness. May we see your law's delight and not live like Jacob does in this passage, but mature in the faith so that we become those who trust in you and walk with you. And may you cause us to trust that through all our falls and foibles, all our sins and strife, suffering, and even in the face of death, may you cause us to be those who trust in your promises, in your faithfulness to them. May we trust in that for ourselves and for our children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.